All right, so I've, I've mentioned before that, um, that I spent uh, 11 years in the Army National Guard, first the Missouri National Guard, then the Colorado National Guard, and, and for almost a decade of those 11 years, um, I was a, a chaplain. And what a lot of people don't realize is that as a chaplain, you, you're not just a pastor wearing a uniform. You're, you have three hats you wear. Um, that one is the, that role that as kind of a pastor, um, but also as a kind of a, a mental health a first responder, so to speak, uh, a counselor who has confidentiality within a, a unit, and then also as uh, an ethics advisor to, the, to a battalion commander or a brigade commander, and, and so the, it's, it's actually the chaplain and the JAG, the, the judge advocate general, who are advising the commander on what just war is and how to handle really hard situations. It's probably the only thing I've ever done in my life where the, the, the pastoral role was the easiest. I say that because it was very difficult, and, and I, I, can't even, I can't even tell you how many times I, as a chaplain, or my fellow chaplains who were elsewhere in the state, or even sometimes elsewhere in the country, uh, would, would come upon a situation or, or be trying to help a soldier deal with a, a moral paradox or a problem, something that you just, it, it, it so far outpaces all three of those hats that you wear that you don't know what to do with it. I remember one, um, this was not a soldier that I talked to, but was one where uh, I was part of a group that uh, one of my friends who was a chaplain was asking for advice on how to, how to help the soldier. Um, he was a platoon leader, so he was a, a lieutenant, um, so that means he's probably in his uh, mid-20s at this point, and he was processing his deployment, his first deployment to Iraq. He was having hard, a really hard time sleeping because he, was, he kept going over and over in his head this situation that was, he was in. The situation was that he, it was kind of early on in his, his, um, his tour, his deployment to Iraq, and he was in a, an urban fob. I can't remember if it was in Baghdad or Fallujah or something like that, but it was, it was in a really heavily populated area, and it was a rather large fob, which is a forward operating base, which is the secure area where you know, you eat and sleep and, and you do missions out from there. And it, it has extremely high security. This was in the phase of the war, like after the kind of initial phase where as, as U.S. military is settling in, they're trying to find ways and opportunities to, to help the locals and to, to really be a good presence, a flourishing presence in the midst of uh, the, the civilian population. And one of the ways that they did that was either, you know, you could... They trained up the local Iraqi National Police and um, the Iraqi uh, Army, the, the new army. <laughs> um, they would try to be a resource and help civilians. And this platoon leader is explaining that in a, uh, in a medical emergency, uh, an Iraqi civilian could call a helpline on the FOB, and depending on what was going on, if they were able to, the FOB would you know, send out a, a fire team of, of soldiers to go and try and help them. Um, it was often, you know, just kind of, sometimes it was as simple as rendering first aid uh, to somebody who was injured, or sometimes if the injury was really bad, they would bring that person back onto the FOB to receive medical treatment from doctors. This was risky, <laughs> because you didn't know if the call that you were getting was real or not, and it was an open invitation, basically, to... To, to have a fake call to make up a situation, and while the soldiers were, were responding to that call, 
they could be ambushed, either on the way there or on the way back. One night, early in his tour, like, like I said, this, this platoon leader said that a call came in that a little girl had had a, a hand injury and the, her parents couldn't stop the bleeding. Almost any time it's a kid, you can guarantee they will respond. So this platoon leader grabbed a fire team, four other soldiers loaded up in their Humvee, and they rushed to this home where the call had come from, scanning the entire weight to make sure that there wasn't an ambush. And they arrived safely, and it turns out that it was a real, it was a real thing. In fact, the, the girl's um, pinky, uh, through broken English and trying to find out what happened, the, her pinky had been mostly amputated, and she needed a doctor. And so they took this little girl and the father to... Uh, the, the Ford operating base for treatment. She was treated. The bleeding was stopped. I can't remember if they were able to save the finger or not, but she and her father were returned safely home, and they didn't think much more of it. The platoon leader, uh, I gather, told my, this, this, my chaplain friend, like, this is what I signed up for. Right? You sign up, to defend people who need defending, whether that is an American civilian or, a, or an Iraqi civilian, doesn't matter. That's, that's what you sign up for, right? 48 hours later, there was a sizable mortar attack that hit the Ford operating base right in the vicinity of the, the, aid, tent, the aid tent, the, the, the hospital treatment area. It turned out that afterward, when they went to go check on the family uh, that, that next morning to see how they were doing, they were gone. When they asked neighbors, to, again, through broken English, trying to understand, hey, where'd they go? The neighbors said that they moved away the very morning after they treated the girl's finger. They weren't there, but they did find the pliers that the father had used to sever his daughter's finger. He did that, he learned, in order to have access to the forward operating base and pace out the distance so that mortars could target the hospital aid tent on the fob. He did that, thankfully, there were no casualties. The platoon leader, it's probably the only reason he doesn't have any PTSD about this. I want to pause in telling the story and just ask, like, what are you feeling right now? Are you sad? Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're enraged. Maybe it is so beyond the pale to even imagine that a father could do this to his own daughter in, in a wartime situation. Like even then, it's just beyond the pale. You can't even wrap your head or your heart around something like this. But that's not why this platoon leader couldn't sleep. When an Iraqi national police, a, a, an INP, was recruited the first thing that they would do after they completed their training is they would be issued a sidearm, 
um, two magazines of ammunition and a body armor that they would wear as part of their duties on patrol. More than 50% of those Iraqi national police ended up selling that sidearm, ammunition, and body army armor to Al-Qaeda for $500, U.S. dollars, because that would buy their family food for a year. And the situation with this dad and his daughter was very similar in that he was paid by a terrorist organization to do this knowing that they would be invited onto the base and he would have an opportunity to pace out the mortar attack. But it was enough money for him to move his family to a safe place. The platoon leader was having trouble sleeping because he said he would have rather have been ambushed than to know that that was even possible. Never mind a decision the father would have to make. Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy? That word mercy is the word chesed, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. And to walk humbly with your God. I'll be honest, that makes for an amazing bumper sticker. If you live in very privileged Boulder County suburbs. Sometimes, the answer to the question of what should I have done differently? How could I do justice or and love mercy in a situation? The answer to that question eludes us. And while thankfully, most of us will never have to face that kind of a decision, either the decision of the father or of the platoon leader, in that moral paradox, and I pray none of us ever will. But we have to recognize that that alone, the fact that we don't have never had to and won't, likely won't have to, is one hell of a gift. It's a hell of a gift, but it's also a curse. Because not ever having to face that, never having, not having to emotionally deal with that makes it so much easier to view life and to view the world through a filter designed actively to avoid having to ever face it. It also means the more we are able to sanitize and read the Bible from an emotional distance, to be able to read these events in chapters 18 and 19 and make it an intellectual exercise of how, did, how, how should David have done justice and mercy in this situation. And we do that in order to make justice and doing justice and loving mercy more possible and feasible and convenient for us. Let me give you an easier example. Raise your hand if you know the, the Pharisees were the bad guys. Right? The Pharisees are the bad guys in Jesus' day. He's the one, like they're the ones that the religious establishment that Jesus is preaching against and everybody is just burdened by all these extra laws on top of Torah that they are telling everybody that they have to obey. They're tithing on their spice rack. Did you know that it's not because they, really, they just really enjoyed burdening people with extra things to do and hoops to jump through? Did you know that the Pharisees did that actually 
because they were desperate for God's rescue out from the, under the yoke of the Roman Empire, and they believed wrongly, but it was sincere, they believed that the Messiah would return if Israel were holy enough and deserving enough. The idea that if I just tithe on my spice rack, then maybe the Messiah will come sounds really dumb to us now, but you have to know that they have had good intentions. And how many of the daily decisions you and I make are some, some combination of terrible, dumb decisions and good intentions? Okay? I can't throw stones when, you, when I live in a glass house either. Like the Pharisees, David's situation is in this impossible paradox of what faithfulness looks like. Let me put it this way. I, do, I, I, have, I, I normally start a sermon series reading you know, anywhere from like six to ten different commentaries, and over time, some of them become very clear and better than others, and this one, I kind of whittled it down to about five, and every single one of them had a different understanding and evaluation of how David conducted himself as king in this passage. Not one of them agreed with the other on a major, on a major point on that point of whether or not David was being faithful or unfaithful and whether he was being selfish in his failure to do justice with Absalom or maybe he was being merciful and showing God's kindness and God has said, but Israel was just too hurt to appreciate it. It's an amazing Rorschach test for whether Justice or mercy is, is our preference. You should know that like the historical books, which include First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, right? The historical books are frustratingly vague sometimes. Okay? They they tell the story, they they tell of the events, but don't tell you what you're supposed to think or believe about the events, even if there is a right answer to that, right? So, you, so you're left with having to understand, like, okay, what is the focus and where is the emphasis in this narrative? Is there any repetitive language used? What is the context culturally, historically, or otherwise? How would the original audience have felt that it, it required? It's, this is where the art of interpretation is more art than science, right? There is a huge clue in this passage that helps us understand what we should be focused on, though. And that is the fact that this is the culmination, the final battle of a civil war between God's people, the first of its kind. After everything Israel's been through, they've never, they've never fought and killed each other. Okay? And the final battle, the, clim- the climax of this gets three verses. It gets, it gets three mer- verses and almost zero details And instead, we get all kinds of details painstakingly written and recorded about how David felt and what he experienced and how, even in between the passages that that Michael read for us, how, how like one runner outpaced the other one to get to David in time, Right? 
is intentionally trying to help us see that there is an impossible catch-22 in David's ability to do justice and love mercy. Let me, let's, let's, let's walk through that a little bit because I don't want us to look at this from an emotional distance. I think it's important for us to not sanitize what's happening here because after four years of seeding rebellion, is, this, is, this isn't just like a conflict out of frustration and passion and disagreement. It is premeditated. Absalom took four years seeding rebellion and then launched a coup and, and had a bloody civil war. For David, it's amazing because he's experiencing deja vu all over again. Right? If you remember, we, we, we talked several weeks ago now about how David was running in the wilderness, not from Absalom, but from Saul, who he was trying not to, to harm Saul because he was still God's anointed, and now he's running from his own son. He's, he's on the run and he's hiding. He is with, he's with a, a, similarly, in the same way, he's in hiding with this loyal remnant. That irony is not lost on David. When he flees Jerusalem in shame and guilt and distress, they're traveling below a cliff. When a man named Shimei, this is in chapter 16, a man named Shimei, it just says he is from Saul's household, so maybe like a, a servant from Saul's household, starts yelling at him from the top of this cliff, throwing rocks at him in his entourage, and telling him, you are cursed, and telling him, you are worthless, get out of here, this, is the bl- this blood is on your hands, he says to David. And his, one of his guards, one of his mighty men says, David, I can take care of this, you want me to take care of this? I can take care of this. David stops him. He says, no, his curses are a sermon from the Lord. He's right. Somewhere in this wilderness, wandering, a, a, flip, a switch flipped. And David, in conviction and clarity, and something, something became very clear to him, and he went from passivity and the cold rejection of Absalom that, that Michael talked about last week to an, a more active leadership and a genuine care for Absalom. He even said, I will, like, he, even, he had to have his commanders tell him, no, you're not going to go fight on the front lines. You're too important. And David said, if that is what you believe is best. He's listening. He's engaged He starts caring for Absalom. He's probably realizing and understanding that he had done to Absalom what Saul had done to him. And if there was mercy, if there was hesed for Mephibosheth to be welcomed to his table, then maybe if he won this battle, he could welcome Absalom back to his table. He was hoping against hope that he could reconcile with his son, that he could repent for the cold disdain he had for him in rejecting him. But it's too late. If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Mephibosheth and, and how Mephibosheth 
was fully expecting David to, as the new dynasty head, to, to clean house and to, to have all of his family executed because he was the son of Saul, the only surviving son of Saul. And I said that those expectations were normal in a, when a new dynasty took over. Absalom did not do as David did with Mephibosheth. He did everything that was more normal in the ancient Near East and then some. In fact, he even goes so far as to have David's royal concubines brought up to the roof of the palace from where David first spied Bathsheba and then slept with them. As if to say, hey David, guess what? I'm doing the same thing you did ten times over. I'm going to do it to you. And you should feel shame because this is all your fault. It is one of the most vindictive, cruel, heartless, wicked moves ever recorded in Scripture. Mephibosheth had the throne, he had control, he had all the resources of the kingdom that David had built up, everything. And so for David's loyal remnant to go with him, to follow David, would be to risk everything, and then some. Let me read chapter 18, verse 5, actually, to, uh, to see how, that's, that's the context for this. So, so the king stood at the side of the gate. This is before, like, as they were going out to do battle. While all the army marched out hundreds by hundreds and by thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David made it clear that he wanted his son spared, to be kind and to be merciful to him. If you're in that army marching out and you're overhearing that, you're like, what the hell are we doing? We're here putting our lives on the line for you, David, and you're like, please be kind to the guy that slept with your ten concubines on the roof of the palace? Like, we have nothing except the clothes on our back and the sword at our, strapped to our side, and you want us to be nice to this guy? No. That is why Joab, who is the commander, probably the first among those three, ignored his orders. And that is why he is livid with David, because the reason that the, the soldiers are, are sulking back into Jerusalem is because this should have been a victory. And their own king, his own king, like it feels like nothing ended up getting solved. The thing that Absalom conducted a coup, the reason why Absalom conducted a coup it seems still to be the case. David is passive and doesn't get it. Once again. So what should David have done? This is the, the million-dollar question, right? Because uh, each of the five commentaries that I consulted on this had a different answer to that question. Was he right to command restraint because that's what a God of grace would have his anointed do? Or was Joab right for ignoring the order because in this case, justice was necessary to preserve the unity of God's people? 
Should David have sucked it up and played the part of king, even though his, and put his personal feelings aside as a father, as the soldiers came home, like Joab told him to? Or did Israel actually need to see their king as a human being and a father in order to reconcile with those that they just got done fighting a battle against? How do you bring shalom to a kingdom through doing justice and bring shalom to your family by loving mercy? These are all really, really good questions. But what if we're not David? What if we're not David? Maybe, we're, maybe those are good questions. Maybe we're asking the wrong question. What if, what if we're the one whose vanity and obsession with self-image hurts other people? What if we're the one who made everything worse by taking justice into our own hands instead of waiting for God to have vengeance? What if we're the one who usurps God's kingdom in the name of fighting for it? What if we don't even know that the justice we're fighting for is actually hubris? What if we're the one who wanted to trade places with David, not because, or what if we're one of the, what if we are the one who wanted to trade places, but not because of Hesed, but because of sheer hubris and self-righteousness? What if even if, even if we are David, like, let's say that that actually is how we should read this text. What if his anguished wish to have died instead of his son was actually birthed out of the realization that he deserved his son's fate for what he did with Bathsheba and to his friend Uriah? And so to see ourselves in him is to see ourselves in Absalom anyway. What if we're not David because even David couldn't be David? What if we're not David because we can't be? But what if we also don't have to be? Let me reread verse 33. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the cry of someone who has faced the terrifying impossibility of justice and mercy. It is impossible. But it is also at the same time the purest expression of justice and mercy in this entire passage. David uttering this, and in his grief, whether it was the right way of dealing with this or not, ends up saying something that foreshadows the only justice and mercy we can actually hope for without sacrificing one for the other. It actually recognizes that our, pro our biggest problem is not other people. Our biggest problem is not our family of origin or how someone else treated us, no matter how badly we were treated and no matter who it was that treated us badly. Maybe our biggest problem is not our circumstances, 
or the things that keep us up at night. Maybe it's sin, which is at once really bad news, but also explains everything. It's, this, it's sin that divides and compromises our hearts every bit as Absalom divided and compromised Israel from the inside out. Sin prefers the praise of strangers over the, over the rebuke of those who love us. In our hubris, because we don't want to stare justice and mercy in the face or the impossibility of being faithful to either one of them, never mind both of them, because of that, we love sin more than God's has said. And if we didn't, we wouldn't. Whether you're King David or platoon leader in Iraq or you're Joe Schmo asking, what should I have done is good. But asking, as Paul does in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? That, that is the right question. That is, the, that is the only question that actually looking justice and mercy in the face and trying to do them both, that's exactly where it should lead us to. If, oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, if that is the cry of one who has faced the terrifying impossibility of doing justice and loving mercy both, then Eloi, Eloi, Esabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Jesus on the cross is the cry of the only one who is faithful to fulfill both of them. Unlike David, King Jesus came down from his throne to actually battle the real problem. Not the brokenness of our families, not the sins of our past that we've already done, but all of sin and all of death. Jesus brought a true and better shalom, the one that we need to actually not stay awake at night. He brought a true and better shalom to the subjects of his kingdom who are citizens not by right of their merit, but by the righteousness that Jesus gives us. Like Absalom, he too hung from a tree, cursed. He too was buried in a hole unceremoniously and covered with stone. Unlike Absalom, he didn't make enemies of his friends and family. He made a family out of his enemies. And unlike Absalom, he was utterly blameless and sinless. And therefore, unlike Absalom, he reigns now. He is the Prince of Peace, not for a peace only that is to come, but for a peace that is true spiritually, ultimately, and actually, really, at peace. That was what my chaplain friend told that platoon leader. You can have peace because even, even that impossible decision of a, of a father who probably did love his daughter, even that was resolved on the cross. In Christ, justice and mercy is more than possible. 
It is signed in God's blood. It is sealed in God's chesed, and it is delivered for sinners once and for all by God's Son. My point I'm trying to make in this is that justice and mercy don't just meet on the cross. Justice and mercy isn't just reconciled on the cross. We see on the cross that for, for the first time since Adam and Eve fell, that justice and mercy didn't used to be two different things. That the only reason they seem impossible to do for us now is because there once upon a time in Genesis 1 and 2, justice and mercy, we didn't have any idea. Adam and Eve had no clue or category for them not being anything other than joined at the hip. But on the cross, they are restored as two sides of the same coin called grace. I don't have a whole lot of application for the sermon this morning because I think it's enough to just sit in that. And I'm going to answer questions. If you have questions, please text them in again. But I want to end by talking about the part of Micah 6, 8 that you may have noticed I intentionally left out, which is the humbling gift of grace. Because do justice and love mercy is fulfilled in Christ. Our failure to do the impossible, never mind either one of them, finds resolution and walk humbly with your God. It's fascinating because when you understand that justice and mercy are two sides of the same coin, you realize that walk humbly with, your God, with the Lord your God is not a third thing, but the response to the first thing. To walk humbly is, is not to walk in, in the humility of defeat as, as David's soldiers did when re-entering the city, but a victory. It is, it is in the humility of a victory that was won on your behalf, that a battle you didn't fight because you couldn't. You were dead in your trespasses as our assurances. Her assurance of grace read this morning. That walk humbly is one of gratitude. I read Romans 7, uh, verse 24 earlier when I said, who will deliver us from this body of death? The next verse says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What Paul is articulating there is the impossibility of actually ever doing justice and loving mercy. And that should lead us to cry out, what do we do? Exactly. Praise be to Jesus Christ our Lord, who is a true and better king than David, who didn't just say, would that I could take your place. He did it. The most underappreciated word in that clause to walk humbly with your God is the word with. That with means that, that God doesn't, we don't walk with God at a distance. 
It means that we don't have to, to read Scripture through an emotional distance or to try and shove down the things that it is reminding of, us of that we might need to do business with and understand how badly and desperately we need grace. It means that, with means that we need to be reminded that if sin could not keep God from rescuing us on the cross, sin is also not going to keep God from being with his beloved through his spirit now. That whatever distance you feel of God, that's Joab. That's Joab telling you to get your crap together. That's not the God. What's, what's incredible about this passage too is God's, God is mentioned one time. Part of David's distress is being implied through the, the subtle way the narrative is written. Is to, make it, is to communicate to the reader that David in his distress, part of the cause of his distress is be, because he feels lost from God. And that's very validating, is it not? Because when, when Micah 6, 8 says, to walk humbly with your God, it means that that's not, it's not just possible, it's actually what faithfulness looks like. And lastly, your God Jesus didn't slay Goliath. He slayed sin and death. Right? The only, only the one who created you could redeem you from those odds. And this God, the creator, who can do all things, this God is not just a God or not just the God. He's your God. He is not the universe. God is not this mysterious and unknown thing that may or may not be on your side depending on karma or if you were nice to the person in the Starbucks drive-thru who came in after you. Like, he doesn't work. Like, this is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who acted and worked in history and is not done yet. This is the God of Peter and Paul. This is the God of Brad and Jeannie. Of Zach and Henry. Of Allie and Tom. This is the God of Michael. This is the God of Rocky. This is the God of Hillary and Danny. This is the God of Ransom and Deacon. He's our God. And if He's for you, who can be against you? Okay, first question. There is no way to transition out of that. <sighs> if you can't tell, I don't know, I'm not even sure why this sermon weighed on me as much as it did, but it did. Um, first question. This may seem distracting, but it seems like sometimes biblical details that don't make sense are meant to convey some point we don't see on the surface. Several points in the story strain my suspension of disbelief. 20,000 people dying in any battle in the ancient world. How do we take these numbers literally? The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. What is this supposed to mean? 
All right, let me, let me handle these each one at a time. Uh, 20,000, that is very likely happening over several days, not in a single day. And it includes both sides because the way that the, the, the narrative is framed, that's actually, yeah, that, that lines up. Okay. Number two, the battle spread over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men than that day than the sword. What does that mean? That's a really good question. What's being one of the themes that's weaving in and out of sight through this narrative is that God is fighting for his anointed. And God's faithfulness to his people in all of Scripture, in all the Old Testament, is tied to the land. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, this is an example, okay? I have no idea what that means. I don't know if it's like, I, I was going to make a joke earlier about the, the, the tree beard and the, the ents, right? But like, maybe, I have no idea, okay? I don't know. But, but the, the, the writer of this part of the passage is, intent, is very, uh, and very clearly and obviously trying to imply that some, in some way God intervened supernaturally, okay? And lastly, are we supposed to think Absalom actually got his hair caught in the tree and was hanging by his hair? Or is this a metaphorical picture for something to do with Absalom's hair and vanity? Yes. Yeah, I think that's actually, I think that's both. Um, see my answer to question number two. Okay, are we invited to see Jesus as the greater David who we can truly pattern our lives after and it will be amazingly joyful and utterly terrifying? Yeah, I think so. And I think that like David, like one of the hardest and most, like in ways that we don't, often count the cost. One of the worst parts about living as we do in a modern world is that we can so be distracted by things that don't matter, that we don't have to face this like David was forced to face it. That's why narratives like this can be, are and can be a gift to us because it forces us to do business with the impossibility of justice and mercy. And if it leads us to say, what do we do? Good, that's the first half. Because unlike David, we can look back in hindsight. We understand David had an inkling uh, that, that, that God was going to be faithful to him, especially at this point. Like he trusted in God's promises to him, but he had no idea, like we do, of how God would fulfill those promises. We have greater clarity than David even, and greater comfort as a result. How did you help soldiers through wrestling with the emotional and mental issues that come when killing others? Tough job, I can't imagine. Man, I, um, I can't even... That is just a huge question. I, but I do want to validate the question that, yeah, it is hard because something we don't think about very often is like even if it's just and it's the right thing, in a situation, like even if we have that clarity, to take the life of an image bearer incurs a, what's called a moral injury. We're not meant to do that. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And because of that, that injury needs care and healing and grace. So yeah, 
Thanks for asking. I, I kind of want to... If you'd like to talk more about that in, afterward, I'm, I'm happy. Um, say more about... This will be the last one. Say more about justice and mercy in the garden. What did Adam and Eve pre-fall know of either? Good question. Think about the words justice and mercy. Justice implies that, an injust- that injustice exists, right? Mercy implies that there is something that has been done that needs mercy to be given. In the garden, before sin, these two words would not have been in Adam and Eve's vocabulary because it's pre-fall. The Old Testament would have just understood that as shalom, peace. That natural, at the time, natural state of human flourishing, of perfect relationship with God and with your fellow man. And that is what we have to look forward to. Justice and mercy at one point in the future when Jesus returns and consummates all of his promises. When that happens, justice and mercy will only be used in the past tense if we even remember it at all, because shalom will be the norm. That is a gift. Um, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for not looking away from us when we look away from you in our sin. Help us, Lord, to first not look away at the impossibility that our sin creates in this world, that, that the need for justice and mercy at all is, is our own doing to, in the, to begin with. Lord, let us not stop there. Let that impossibility be a crucible in our hearts that drives us to a, help, a redemptive helplessness that is satisfied in you. That we may walk humbly with you, our Lord, in gratitude and confidence because you have achieved victory on our behalf. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Amen. World where we have both sinned against others and also been sinned against by others and learning to live out justice and mercy in the midst of that. And the place that God calls us to as we wrestle through that tension is to sit at a table with him as the one who we have ultimately sinned against 